Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we're back with another edition of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And my guest this week is David Leaf, and this is the first time in three years I've had an in-studio guest. Wow. This week and next, David Leaf will be talking about Brian Wilson, the mad genius of the Beach Boys, a very interesting, very complex character, and uh, no one knows him any better then David Leaf. He has known him for years. He has written a book about him called Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys and the California Myth. And we're going to get into who Brian Wilson really, really is. And I am always fascinated by people who creatively are so brilliant, and yet they have demons. So this week and next, it's a fascinating portrait of Brian Wilson with my guest, David Leaf, this week on Hollywood and Levine. So, David, I know you make documentary films. Your partner, former partner, John Scheinfeld, was a recent guest. But I really want to focus on your relationship with Brian Wilson, because Brian is such a fascinating complex character, quite a genius, and very few people knew him as well as you do. And so you you wrote a book, actually you wrote a book in 1978 called God Only Knows the Story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth, and you have done an update. Usually when people do an update on a book, it's like, uh, you know, a chapter, you know, and uh, oh, and this happened... Uh, two years later, but you've almost doubled the book. (laughs) But there's so many books, so many documentaries, so many things about Brian out there, but this has to be the one to read because you weren't just a biographer. I mean, you really, really knew him. So first question, how did you first meet Brian? Uh, Thank you, Ken. Uh, It is a giant, a massive update, as the British say. Um, when I moved to California, I wanted to write a book about Brian Wilson. And I hadn't been here 48 hours, and I, I was leaving the unemployment office in Santa Monica. What year was this? This is the fall of 1975. Okay. And I crossed the street at, at Broadway and Fifth Street, and walking towards me was Dennis Wilson, Brian's 
uh, younger brother uh-huh. and, and the Beach Boys drummer. Was and, he going on unemployment too? <laughs> <laughs> he he was going into a building, which I later found out was Brother's studio. But I walked up to him because I was I never lacked confidence. And, and I said, hi, Dennis. My name is David Leaf. I just moved to California to write a book about your brother, Brian. And he laughed. It was like the most absurd notion. <laughs> and he just, he just said, good luck. But it, it was kind of amazing. I'd been here 36 hours, and I've met his brother. Uh-huh. Uh, flash forward about eight months later, and I'm at the YMCA in West L.A. on Sautel, and um, I was playing, just shooting baskets with a friend of mine from college. Now, in 1976, the legend of Brian Wilson was he never left his room. Mm-hmm. So the last thing in the world I expected was for Brian Wilson to walk on the basketball court with his cousin, Stan Love, who had just retired from the NBA, Kevin Love's father. Right. And say, hey, you guys want to play two on two? So it was like... It was the most surreal experience possible. <laughs> meant to be. There, there seems to be a certain serendipity in this for sure. But, you know, as, as uh, I used to say to my mother when, when I'd fly to New York on business, she would get upset that I was traveling so much because she was so scared. And she says, you have to fly so much. I said, you know, Mom, if you want to get hit by, the, by a car, you've got to cross the street when the traffic's against you. And so, <laughs> so you, know, you want to write a book about Brian Wilson, you've got to come to California. And there he was. And we, we sh- played two-on-two maybe for 20 minutes. And really the only thing I remember is he was all offense, no D. I mean, he just, he got the ball, he shot it. This is what I mean about intimate details. Like, no other biographer will tell you this. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I told my friends uh, about this, and they're like, what are you talking about? It's not, it wasn't possible. Um, but there he was. And you exchanged numbers? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. You fouled him? What did, what did you do? <laughs> I, you know, it, I, you couldn't foul him. He got the ball shot it so quickly. Uh, no, I didn't do anything. But I started to write for local newspapers, and I was doing articles like for the Anaheim Bulletin on the, on the Beach Boys and, and BAM Magazine out of San Francisco. And so I got to know the Beach Boys publicist and and the Warner Brothers Records publicist, and I started getting invited to events like the Beach Boys' 15th anniversary concert at the L.A. Forum um, on on December 31st, 1976. And then the following April, on April Fool's Day, the Beach Boys released an album called The Beach Boys Love You. And I was invited to that at Brothers Studio, the building where I had met Dennis Wilson outside of – and Brian was there. All the Beach Boys were there. And Brian was sitting at the piano as the album played, playing songs that had nothing to do with the record. It was, <laughs> it, it, it was like he was trying to drown it out. And and what was – I mean, I was uh, – there's a picture of me from that day, me standing there watching him, listening. It looks devotional. It's like I can't can't believe I'm sitting – standing next to Brian Wilson as he's playing the piano. And, and – um, I really didn't get to know him that day either. Um, what I did is I started publishing a, a fanzine called Pet Sounds. And uh, Brian's girlfriend at the time saw a copy of it, got in touch with me. And, and when she heard I was going to be writing this book, um, she said, well, you really should meet the guy you're writing the book about. 
not mm-hmm. not interview him, but why don't you come over to to our apartment when when he's there for dinner, and you'll just get to hang out with him. So I spent some time with him, talking to him, and he's very very reserved, very very shy. So I want to go back a second. You're a kid growing up in New York. Why the fascination with Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys? I wasn't fascinated with Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys when I was growing up. I was a Beatle maniac, absolutely out of the box Beatle nut. From the the, the second time I heard "I Want to Hold Your Hand," uh, the Beatles were it for me. I bought some Beach Boys records in the '60s, um, California Girls. Help me, Rhonda. Good vibrations. Never bought a Beatles. Uh, never bought a Beach Boys albums. I bought the Beatles albums. Mm-hmm. I, I looked at the back. I, I they were like uh, Rosetta Stones. What could you learn from these records? So why did you want to do Brian Wilson instead of Paul McCartney? It was a cheaper flight to Los Angeles than London. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of the reasons I moved to L.A. was the rents were so much cheaper here. Than, than New York. It's like, where was I going to be a starving writer? That's still true. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I first came to visit L.A., a friend of mine was living in a two-bedroom uh, furnished apartment on, on 3rd Street in Santa Monica for two forty-five a month. And it was like, okay, there's that, or there's the sixth-floor walk-up, rat-trap, roach-infested walk-up in New York City at the time that New York was going bankrupt. And being a bit of a suburban prince, it was like, I'm going to go to L.A. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, I read an article in Rolling Stone magazine in 1971 by a guy named Tom Nolan, and that's when I became obsessed with Brian Wilson almost instantly from the moment I read that article. What about the article so intrigued you? Uh, there were a couple of things. One was th- just the story of Brian was fascinating. Two, there was the music they spoke about, which was this legendary, never-finished, never-released album called Smile. And third, I, I, I was at a time in my life, I was studying journalism. We had read Edward R. Murrow biography, and, and I was like, wait a second, you can change the world with journalism. And, and I didn't like the way Brian was being being kind of exploited in this article. It, it seemed like he was in trouble psychologically. And and when I bought the first Beach Boys album of my life, Surf's Up album, the title song was from this legendary Smile album. And it was like, oh, my God, this is as good as the article says it is, maybe even better. I want to hear the rest of it. The song just before Surf's Up is called Till I Die, brand-new song from Brian, kind of like an In My Room type ballad and it was one of the most depressing things I'd ever heard (laughs) (laughs) but in my room had been one of my favorite Beach Boys songs and this touched me but it also let me know Brian can still do it he still has all those talents are inside of him why isn't he doing it and so I kind of chose it as my mission Uh, as I I said to my college roommate I'm going to move to California write a book about Brian Wilson become his friend, and help him finish Smile. Now, that sounded insane in 1971 when I said that. Sure, sure. And you made all of that come true. Uh, in, in certain ways, it sure, it sure did. So you, you meet him, you're at his girlfriend's apartment, just kind of hanging out. Um, 
did you approach him about the book or did you, you know, just get a chance to hang with him more? Uh, were you sort of nervous that if you mentioned writing the book that he would think, okay, here's just another person trying to take advantage of me in some way. Absolutely. Brian has spent his entire adult life with people trying to get a piece of him. Mm -hmm. And I thought, God, this guy's made all this beautiful music that has brought so much harmony and good vibrations to the world. I'm not going to be one of those leeches. I'm just going to hang out and get to know him a little bit. And so I didn't mention the book, didn't talk about the book. Dennis didn't, uh, you know, <laughs> blow your cover, didn't see and go, oh, hey, that's the guy who said he's going to write a book about you. No, Den I saw him at the unemployment office. Den De Dennis <laughs> didn't, didn't blow my cover. There's a funny story about Dennis. After the book came out, Dennis called me like 3 o'clock in the morning. And he goes, David, who told you this in the book? It was an anonymous source I, I had quoted. And, and as a journalist, I said, you know, Dennis, ordinarily I wouldn't tell you uh, who, who said that, but I'll make an exception in this case. It was your mother. <laughs> and he goes, why Call did your you... lawyer, Dennis. <laughs> he goes, why'd you believe her? And then he realized the absurdity of it, and we both burst into laughter. Um, but no, the, the, Dennis didn't blow my cover, <laughs> cover with Brian. And in fact... Uh, I never talked to Brian about the book. Um, what happened was his friends, the few people he trusted, let him know that I was okay because after they read the book, it, you know, they, they sensed I was on his side. So Brian didn't know that you were writing the book while you were writing the book? As far as I know, he didn't know. Uh -huh. Was he upset? When he, when he found when he out? he found out, mm-hmm. Not, not that I'm aware of. I, you know, Brian. Brian is very much in the moment, always. What do I need right now? I'm hungry. Let's eat. I want to make a music. Let's go to the studio. There's not a lot of retrospect, uh, except when it comes to people who have done him wrong. And from what he had heard from the people he trusted, like his his girlfriend, um, I hadn't. Uh, before the book came out, something happened that's kind of inexplicable. Uh, like a lot of this story, it's, it doesn't really add up. I was at my apartment with a, a, a collector friend one weeknight in, in the fall, about a month before the book came out. And there's a knock on the door at 1 o'clock in the morning. It's like, who's coming to my apartment at, at 1 a.m.? And I open the door, and it's two L.A. music scenesters, Rodney Bingenheimer okay. and Harvey Kubernick. And with them is Brian Wilson. And they walk in and they said, we didn't know where to take him, so we brought him here. <laughs> <laughs> You're in your pajamas, right? <laughs> and Brian, and they left. <laughs> and, and Brian sat down on the couch and he said, you got anything to eat? And and my friend and I had had dinner at, at La Barbara's, the late lamented pizza joint oh, on Wilshire. My favorite pizza in the world, yes. And I had two left. Now I'm depressed. <laughs> That's the saddest thing in the world. It, it is sad. Mm -hmm. um, so I had two slices left over. I heated them up. He wolfed them down. Went to sleep on the couch. Now my friend and I are looking at each other like, 
how is this possible? <laughs> how is Brian Wilson sitting there? <clears throat> this is a guy who I've just spent six and a half years obsessed about studying writing about him. The guy sitting next to me is probably the biggest collector of Beach Boys memorabilia <laughs> in the world other than the guys in the Beach Boys. Well, that's the greatest thing you could possibly collect is to actually, you have Brian Wilson. We, we had him. <laughs> anyway, about, about two hours later, he woke up <clears throat> and he said, uh, take me home. Now, I said, okay. So we got in my car, my legendary orange Volvo. Uh-huh. And now I knew where he lived. How did I know where he lived? Because about two weeks earlier, his girlfriend's roommate had asked me to give her a ride over to Brian's house to bring him some really nice linens and towels because he had just gotten separated from his first wife and they didn't like what was there. So we were bringing him some nice stuff. Well, was he drugged out that night or drunk or the the what? I didn't know the story of what happened until I started working on this update. And then I called Harvey Kubernick and said, tell me why you brought him to my house. <laughs> what, what happened? <laughs> Harvey had found Brian in the middle of Sunset Boulevard, just kind of weaving in West Hollywood. And he pulled him to the sidewalk. So he didn't get hit by a car, obviously. He didn't realize it was Brian until he pulled the guy out of the street. Wow. And, and Brian he said, Brian, what are, you, what are you on? He said, I took too many uppers. So he was drugged out that night. They had brought him to my house thinking that I would take him to the hospital. Why they didn't take him to the hospital, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, he woke up. I, I drove towards his house. Because I knew where it was. And I said, Brian, where do you live? Waiting for him to give me an right. address. Mm -hmm. Not a word. Down the California incline, up Pacific Coast Highway, up Chautauqua to Sunset. I made a turn towards the house. As we approached the house, about a quarter mile from the house, he goes, okay, my house is fourth on the right. So he uh, knew where we were knew, going. Yeah, he just didn't know the address. Um, <clears throat> and and so, so ended as... An unusual adventure as I thought I would ever had have with Brian. Uh -huh. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to know him better to the point where, where like he was calling you, right? Yes. Well, you know, he got separated and, and ultimately divorced from his first wife. And again, what year would this be? 78, 79, 80, 81, 82. Okay. Um, his girlfriend's roommate uh, became my friend and then my girlfriend, ultimately my first wife. Okay. Before she passed away. Um, anyway, so so Brian would call if he needed something. Or he would just call and say, hey, what are you doing? Come on over. And I remember um, there were a couple of moments that were just heartbreaking. One was, I think it was the Christmas of 1980. We went to visit him. He had been hospitalized. And uh, Eva, Eva decorated a small artificial Christmas tree and brought it to his room and just to cheer it up. Mm -hmm. um, another time we went to his house over uh, near Rustic Canyon. And he, 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 he said, come on over and wanted to play us a new song. It's a beautiful new song. I don't, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it ever got finished or released. But he was in terrible, terrible shape. 
and it was clear that that um, he was going to die unless something drastic happened. How old was he at this time? At this point, he's 40 years old. Mm, that's way too young to be projecting that. Yeah. Yeah, if if anyone had said in 1975 or 1982 or 1990 that Brian would be the last of the Wilston brothers standing, mm-hmm. it, it, people said, don't be ridiculous. But he is, and he's 80 now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so he's twice the age he was on that horrific evening. And then shortly after that, the Beach Boys hired a... a, a a so-called doctor and gave him total control of Brian's life. And, and he s- spent nine years, Brian spent nine years in what he refers to as being in prison as this doctor controlled every aspect of his, every waking moment. Now, when this was going on, did you know, could you sense that this was a bad idea and that, that this doctor, this, this, sort of guru was really just capitalizing on on Brian's fame and estate? Well, when I wrote a, a brief update to the book that came out in 1985, I, I wrote a little bit about this. I had to be careful what I said because I'd gotten a threatening letter, mm-hmm. uh, a le- letter threatening libel if I, if I said the wrong thing. So Naturally, my first in-person interview in three years and there's a leaf blower nearby so you, you can hardly hear it on the on the podcast but it just makes this you know a typical podcast that there's a leaf blower going well you're sitting next to leaf so there I, you I, go. Guess, I guess i i attract okay. him blow on <laughs> <laughs> um so it was it was fairly obvious within a couple of years what was going on because he got Brian into good physical condition. Mm-hmm. Okay, job done. Right, because he was really heavy for a while, he wasn't was he? He was well over 300 pounds. Oh, my God. Oh, no, he, he was morbidly obese. Oh, my God. Um, but what happened was uh, this this weird psychologist uh, called himself Dr. Landy until the, the state stripped him of his license. Um, I found out probably 85, 86, how bad it was from people on the inside. And it it was unhappy to hear. And then I started uh, working. I was working on different shows and different projects that Brian was part of so I could see firsthand how the doctor was controlling him. During that period, you say it's a nine-year stretch. Um, were you sort of kept at bay? Were you able to keep up your relationship with him? Were you able to come over to the house and hang with him while he was sitting in the bed or whatever? Well, what what Landy realized is like like the KGB, I was, I was useful um, because I was going to write great stuff about Brian. So, uh-huh. so in 1986, when there was the Beach Boys 25th anniversary television special and I was hired by uh, Marty Pacetta Productions to be one of the writers on it, um, there was an argument um, inside the Beach Boys world, to give you an idea how, how petty it can be. It was like, well, David can work on the show, but he can't come on location to Hawaii where we're taping. What? <laughs> That's the whole reason for doing it. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> well, it was actually my first Writers Guild job, so it was a okay. big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, Landy said, no, he's coming. 
or Brian's not going. I mean, so Landy Landy held Brian hostage when he needed to. Man, we we got in with the Jeffersons, and they never let us go to Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were moving on up to the east side. Yeah, the east side is right. Yeah, Compton. (laughs) (laughs) So so there were a lot of projects. Uh, I I worked as a writer and co-producer of the National Academy of Songwriters' Salute to the American Songwriter. Brian would be on that. I produced a television show called The Spirit of Rock and Roll. Brian was on that. The the biggest coming together with he and I professionally at that point was Warner Brothers Records hired me to write the press kit for his first solo album. Okay. And I had to interview him for that. Now, for some reason, um, Dr. Landy had had me coming to sessions before that happened. He wanted me to hear the music before I got hired. He wanted my feedback. And uh, I didn't hear anything great because Landy was kind of executive producing it, if you will. Wasn't he also like writing lyrics and things? Wasn't he actually piggybacking himself onto he, the songs? He and his, he and his girlfriends were, were writing lyrics. It, it, oh, it, it really got terrible. A friend of mine worked for Mattel, and he called me and said, can you put me in touch with the Beach Boys? We have an idea for a promotion. So I did. And what they did was they did a California Barbie. Uh-huh. And they had Brian write a new song for it called, uh, I think it was called Living Doll. And the credits on the song were Brian Wilson, Eugene Landy, Alexandra Morgan, Landy's girlfriend. Uh-huh. So, yes, he was piggybacking every right. step of the way. Besides a big six-figure salary and all his expenses paid and a home to live in. So the, 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 the ex- exploitation was staggering. You um, could sense it at the time? Well, I could see it. I could hear it. I, people were giving me information from the inside about it. Uh, I was hearing from the attorney general's office. Um, I was hearing from a, a, an old collaborator of Brian who had started working with him again. Um, th- there was a lot of serious stuff going on. And so I knew it. And we were w- waiting for his license to be stripped away and assumed that when that happened, he would no longer be able to take care of Brian. When you assume, you make an ass of you and me. So when he lost his license, he says, okay, I'm not going to practice anymore. Brian and I are going to form a company together that he named Brains and Genius. Oh, my God. So how was everybody finally able to wrestle Brian away from this monster? Well, we we met a woman who Brian had started dating. Um, at, 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 at Landy's suggestion, he, Brian had gone, uh, to buy a Cadillac at Martin Cadillac corner of Bundy and Olympic. Mm-hmm. And the woman who sold him the car, um, Landy thought it'd be a good experience for Brian to date her. So they start, they started dating <laughs> and she realized what was going on. And she was really the, the, the driving force behind what happened in, in the in the ensuing years in, in which um, Landy finally, uh, there was a legal separation and, and it, so that he could no longer, uh, a restraining order was finally issued. But this was after nine years. Now, there was a movie, there have been a lot of movies uh, about Brian, but I remember there was one about him and Landy, uh, Paul Giamatta played played Landy. 
does Brian watch these movies? Um, and, and if so, what does he think of them? He watches everything. He remembers everything. He know he knows what happened to him. So he doesn't need to see a movie about <laughs> right, it. Right, but he can look at it and go, "That's not the way it happened at all." Or, "Oh my God, this is a flashback." Uh, mostly a flashback. Giamatti was great. Uh, Paul Dano was great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the actor uh, who who played Brian as the older Brian uh, was was also very good. Um, but it, it it's not easy to to be Brian Wilson any way, shape, or form, because from the time almost from the time he came out of the womb, he was being abused by his father, mm-hmm. and and so he's somebody who you almost think is going to always flee. You just raise your arm, and it's almost like he's going to flinch. So there are really deep sense memories of being hit, of being verbally abused that people like Landy learn. To take care, take advantage of, by by using those kinds of threats against him. Mm. I remember you once told me a story that you and Brian were going to go to the movies, you know, just have a a fun night, see a movie, and you you took him to see a movie that at the time was very popular called Shine. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> um. It wasn't a good night. You know, it, 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 it reminds me of my grandfather taking me to see Psycho when I was a kid. Uh-huh. It, it, it's like we should have left fairly fairly soon. Right. Or we never should have been in the theater. It was the wrong movie to take Brian to because it, it looked like uh, it was based on his life almost. Right. It was about father abuse. And, yeah. Yeah. And you said what? That you looked and there was Brian was just kind of like shaking, rocking back and forth in his seat. Uh, yeah, and when I realized it, it was like, okay, let's get out of here. Uh-huh. Um, there were there were happier movie experiences for sure, but that wasn't one of them. So he does watch the documentaries. He does watch the, he, he watched the, the, the narrative film made about him, Love and Mercy. Um, and, uh, you know, my favorite day, jumping ahead a little bit, or one of my favorite days was when he came to the editing room to watch a rough cut of the, of the film I made about him, Beautiful Dreamer. And this is an example of how Brian's like a tuning fork. As a human being, he is so sensitive to vibrations, no surprise. Mm-hmm. And I was so nervous in the editing room that I couldn't sit next to him. So I sat behind him because if if he doesn't like it, when I, when I make these films, it's like there's always one person, if they don't like it, I have failed. Right. If Barry Gibb didn't like the Bee Gees doc, I'm in trouble. I just finished a documentary on Dion. Fortunately, he loves it. Uh, with the U.S. versus John Lennon, I had to take it to show it to Yoko in her kitchen. Mm-hmm. If she doesn't like it, <laughs> I'm in real trouble. Um, so Brian is sitting there. The editor is on his left. He's watching it on this Avid editing system. And I'm sitting behind him. And after about 20 minutes... Brian turns around and he pats me uh, on on my leg and he said, relax, it's okay. Mm. So he could sense my nervousness. Now, when it was over, much to my excitement, he jumped up and he said, I love it. Can I come back tomorrow and bring Van Dyke Parks to show it to him? So this wasn't something he suffered through. He loved the way we had told the story. And and 
um, when you're working with Brian Wilson on a project, it's like you don't want to let him down. I mean, I, I did box sets with him. I did line notes for, for reissues and worked with him on solo albums. And it's like, don't screw it up is basically where you are. That is part one of my two-part interview with David Leaf. And David, of course, has written the book, Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys and the California Myth. It's a big book, too. I mean, it's like 400 pages, but lots of good stuff. Back next week with more about Brian Wilson. In the meantime, our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to Bruce and Jason Miller, and John Wolfert. If you want to get in touch with me, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That is HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com, my email address. And I am on Twitter, at Ken Levine, also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where primarily I use that to showcase some of my cartoons. So check those out and subscribe. Again, part two next week with Brian Wilson, as told to David Leaf, right here on Hollywood and Levine. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.